Okay, Rowan, get it together. <laughs> oh, this is so annoying because it's going to be edited, so no one's going to know that you were funny before we started. <laughs> I feel like it's safe for everyone to assume I'm always funny before we start talking. Get it together. Let's do this. We've got an ad to record. <laughs> All right. Serious time. Let's go. We're doing an ad for an independent artist, so listen up. You know we love to shop from companies that care about the earth. We love the earth and every animal on it. People are are iffy. People are not included, just <laughs> flat out. So when White Light Productions see less jewelry, which is, well, it's actually run by people. Okay, so some people are okay because when White Light Productions see less jewelry wanted us to gush about their work on the podcast again, we knew it would be easy because we just learned Tracy, are you ready for this? They adopted an orca whale. Oh, that is your specialty. That's like where your heart and soul lies. Okay, but okay. okay. So everyone knows on this podcast that Tracy is like team adopt the underrepresented unloved animals. She's team bats. I am team orca whale and White Light Productions Sea Glass Jewelry adopted a whale from the Whale Museum. It means so much to us to get to work with people who are as dedicated to helping the planet as we are. Ron and I are deeply, deeply passionate about trying to keep, maintain, and make our Earth healthy in any way we can. And we're both lucky enough to march around our beautiful little lives wearing beautiful sea glass jewelry. We're so in love. Yeah, you want amazing, vibrant color in a variety of tones? They got you. You want sterling silver for your sensitive little ears? Nailed it. Bold styles? Check. Dainty styles, my specialty. Got it. You want harmony metal that's recycled instead of mined? Boom. They've got you, babe. White Light Production Sea Glass Jewelry genuinely, truly has it all. So check out seaglass.us and be sure to use our coupon code, because we're a real podcast. We have coupon mm-hmm. codes for 10% off your order. It's for Willing and Fable listeners only. And the code is WF10. That's WF10 for 10% off your Seaglass jewelry order. Boom. Add. Boom. Complete. Add. <laughs> <laughs> So I may or may not have just eaten a blood-covered apple. Hey, um, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I need you all to know a little peek behind the curtains. Everyone's like, I know exactly how I want to start this episode. I'm so excited. <laughs> and then comes out with that? Yeah, yeah. So I just like to see your reaction sometimes when I say crazy things. But this is based on a true story. Um, based on a true story that happened to me mere moments ago. Did you, like, cut your finger while cutting an apple and then just go with it? Yeah, sure did. So, um, okay. <laughs> I, have, I have really nice knives. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. messing around with crummy, dull knives. Same. But Anyone who's listened to this podcast for a minute, you all know that I do not mess with apples that are not Honeycrisp, basically. <laughs> and I, 
I swear to you, the Honeycrisp apples that I got, which are the, the ones that are the size of a small child's head, the big, yeah. fat apples. I think they I, only make them that size anymore. Oh, no, you can buy them in little bags. Like bags, a big bag of smaller ones. That's what I want. Anyway, go on. Right, right. But if listen, if you're a strong, independent woman, <laughs> apparently you buy apples that are both massive and have armor. It, this apple was armored. So when I tried to <laughs> slice into it, I totally cut off the tip of my thumb. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Show me your finger. I want to see if it's okay. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, okay. For everyone to know, it is wrapped in bandage, but the whole finger is there. I was afraid she, like, legitimately cut off her finger and then came over to recording. The whole finger is there. It's just I, I sliced and then I stopped with the knife still part of the way through the tip of my finger and I just looked at it for a minute. And I went, okay, this is where we're at. Oh, I, re- I know that feeling when you're like, this is a bad thing and I could choose to react to it or just move on. Right, right. So I, you know, cleaned it up. I have... Basically, I think just four Band-Aids just kind of like wrapped around it in a plaster at the moment. I, <laughs> My mom has already said to me, well, did you put crazy glue on it? Which I didn't. And I knew she'd say that and I should have. But here's the thing. That apple was then covered in my blood. And I wasn't going to throw out the apple that wronged me. Like, <laughs> you can't just do that. I am the predator. You are the apple. I win every time. <laughs> so I, you know, when you have tiny children that are pretending to be like wolves or dinosaurs, so they eat things yeah. ridiculously, like with their teeth bared. <laughs> yes. I did that and I <laughs> dipped it in peanut butter the whole time. <laughs> did you at least wash it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. But okay. <laughs> For the record, it is my blood. So it snatched my blood and me reacquiring it is not exactly. (laughs) (laughs) This is officially the weirdest opening we've had to an episode. Thank you. I try. It's it's episode 47. It's it's only getting weirder from here. (laughs) Anyway. That's true. I'm fine. Thank you all for asking. I know you're sitting there concerned. Um, my funeral song will be, uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Lights Mm. by Meatloaf. It's the only song that came to my head. I wanted to say something funny like 24 Karat Magic, but only Paradise by the Dashboard Lights by Meatloaf. I think that that is your soul revealing itself. I think that's one of those moments where the universe went, take it all away, leave only the truth. (laughs) Paradise by the Dashboard Lights is a song that uses baseball as a metaphor for sex. Uh Uh-huh. And that was how I learned about baseball being a metaphor for sex. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is the Willing and Fable podcast, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so gosh darn fascinating. (laughs) And if you would like to support this podcast and support Rowan getting more Band-Aids for her poor little finger, (laughs) you can support us by joining our Patreon, buying our merch, leaving us a review, or you can sit in a field of flowers and paint a portrait of how this podcast makes you feel while a gentle hum of nature floats on the air around you. But no matter what you do, we're happy to have you here. That 
paragraph of our script might be my favorite part of the day. It's so fun. It's so fun to write. It's so fun to read back because I'll write them in like a blind fugue state and then go to record mm-hmm. and just be like, oh, what little what little tasty treat did I leave myself? Right, right. <laughs> I love it when I know what you're going to say. I love it when in my head I go, she's going to say fugue state and you go fugue state. I do grow increasingly concerned that we we are melding together into one being. <laughs> and so the podcast sounds like someone having a conversation with themselves. I can't even defend it. We're like half merged on all social media. (laughs) (laughs) What if this podcast is just someone having a conversation with themselves? We are but one being that thinks they are two. Sorry, sorry. I went to the existential crisis. I'm so sorry. All I could think of was like, that's one long body in... Two different sides of the country. (laughs) But that's just what you're supposed to think, right? Oh, oh my God. Uh I can't Mm -hmm. do that. I can't do that. I did not get enough sleep for that to be okay. (laughs) I think it's because I didn't get enough sleep (laughs) that I'm like, yeah. Yeah, because you sent me a TikTok at what was five in the morning for me, which was two in the morning for you. I very nicely didn't comment on it, except for apparently on our podcast. (laughs) I very nicely saved this call out for later. I didn't remember of... it until right now, but I remember waking up and going, go to sleep. <laughs> That's how I know that we're one being, because we operate on opposite sleep schedules. One of us goes to sleep and the other one just takes over. I hate this. Wow. Okay. I'm really doing that. I'm Please so stop. sorry. Hi, everyone. <laughs> just so everyone knows, it's a Monday. We are recording on a Monday. Mm-hmm. You are going to get this episode on a Tuesday, but this podcast today has Monday energy Mm -hmm. because it is Monday (laughs) and it is, (laughs) it is the Monday post Mother's Day, which I love my mother. I love Tracy's mother. Again, if you listen to this podcast, you know that we're a huge fan of our mothers in particular, Mm -hmm. but mothers everywhere. You rock. Cool. Moving on. Mother's Day is like the Black Friday of lemonade and generational trauma. Yeah, I was able to have a pretty nice kind of calm Mother's Day, but Rowan did not. But I realized we Mm. recorded our third episode just after Mother's Day last year. Ew, time. Okay. It's been a full year of recording this podcast we didn't release our first episode until the end of may of last year wow i was not ready So when people are listening to this it will be our one year anniversary i'm fine everything is fine we're doing great we're doing great um so on another note this time last year we did not have cool sponsors but now that we are a year older definitely not wiser but perhaps cooler Mm. we do have (laughs) We do have a sponsor, and that is Greenleaf Geek Dice. Y'all know we play D&D. Y'all know we are such dice goblins. Leah from Greenleaf Geek makes handmade custom dice. She curates the most gorgeous dice. We love getting to play with them. Frankly, we love talking about them. Mm -hmm. And now we love using this as an excuse to just talk about D&D. So, Tracy, my question for you Mm, is... What is the most 
dramatic moment you've ever had in D&D that is not you yeeting yourself. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) For those who don't know, in a very recent campaign, my character threw herself into a void and turned herself into not a great old one, but a good young one, Um, which was probably (laughs) going to be my moment. Um, Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) What are some moments in D&D that have made me gasp? I think it was in that same campaign recently because it just wrapped up and we've been playing it for years and it was completely homebrewed by Casey, our DM. From from the the very first place that all of us met in this campaign was a restaurant that she named because a delivery place typed my order wrong. I got a cheeseburger and they typed a chewed burger into, <gasps> into what it was. Like, so we thought that was the funniest thing ever. So Casey had us all meet up at Chewed Fergers Wings and Burgers as, like, the joke <laughs> start of our campaign. Rowan, Chewed Fergers was an undercover, basically, church to a false god who was the big, bad, evil guy of the entire campaign. So every Are you every new me? city we went to, they're like, yeah, they were putting in a new Chewed Fergers, and we would laugh and think that was really funny. And he was establishing <gasps> bases all around the world. Casey, you sly dog. It was we lost our minds. She made a she hand animated a video and played it for us and it was his big dramatic speech. Really good, really amazing. So oh, we all felt so betrayed by Chewed Fergers. I could never have kept that a secret that long. I don't know how she did it. Amazing. Which of ooh, which of my green leaf geek dice, of which you are abundantly familiar, because <laughs> we constantly are sharing pictures. Which of my dice is Chudeferger of Chudeferger's wings and burgers going to use? Hundred percent the the black and silver vampiric dice because he was the big bad evil mm, guy with that clear kind of bloody mm-hmm. cut your finger on an apple red situation yes, going through them. Absolutely, mm-hmm. those are the ones through and through. Out of all the dice we have. That's the energy. And those dice are from Greenleaf Geek's curated collection. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if we have talked about this for a minute, but Leah's curated dice, shopping through them honestly feels like you had your cool friend pick out all the good things you should be looking at and getting rid of all the rest. So you already know everything's beautiful and then you can just go willy-nilly with your own personal taste. Right. And that's what we really want to emphasize is that she has dice for every price point for every player. You want to commission her to make your dream dice? You can do that. You want to find a dice that's a lower price point that's still super beautiful, super high quality? She's got that for you. And that is what I get most excited about. Yeah, and Trace and I are known to choose dice for individual characters. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, which means we have a fair number of dice. I love shiny things. I love I love a good metal dice when you're playing a paladin or mm. you know, a good stone feeling dice for barbarians. You just it makes you feel good, man. Makes you feel good. Yeah. Got to commit. And hey, if you want to commit, Check out Greenleaf Geek at greenleafgeek.com or on Instagram and Twitter at Greenleaf Geek. And when you shop, use our super cool coupon code FABLE for 10% off your order. That's F A B L E. Some restrictions apply. 
you know how future you can go back and listen to a thing and kind of revisit past you and be like, oh, look at how I've grown. I wish that past me could listen to future me and be like, oh, cool. I will get to that place. Mm -hmm. That's nice. Yes. Oh, yeah. Instead, we just got to hope and I guess be kind of nice to ourselves in the moment so that future us will, you know, feel validated. That sounds really mentally healthy. Stop. (laughs) Um, But on that note, hey, past Tracy, I just want you to know that current or future to you, Tracy, is about to cover one of the topics that you have been talking about since the beginning of us having a podcast. I'm very (laughs) excited that you're doing this episode. I'm super excited about this episode. So for those of you who don't know, I have a twin sister. Her name is Jamie. We love her. She did all the art for our podcast. And incredibly talented. Incredibly talented. Such a delightful human. She is at Fly Robot Fly on pretty much all social media. She also has jamieharrisonillustration.com if you want to check out her work. But she went to art school. So ever since she went to art school, I have known about this figure because she geeked out and told me about it. And even recently, we were just driving in the car together and we were talking about Artemisia Gentileschi. And the reason she came back into my mind so strongly to cover on the podcast is that. Jamie picked out one of her paintings for Rowan as her topic in our PowerPoint party where she picked a painting that she felt best represented each of our friends. She chose Judith slaying Holofernes from the Bible by Artemisia Gentileschi for Rowan. That was so cool. First of all, that PowerPoint was awesome because she, like you did when you picked gods for everyone, she really picked characteristics that people like about themselves and... Her pulling an Artemisia Gentileschi painting for me was just, it was so cool. It was I cool. felt so cool. And Rowan can, can confirm that as soon as she started talking about Artemisia Gentileschi in that PowerPoint, I went to our podcast document because we always have spreadsheets. We love spreadsheets and put it on the list as something to cover this season. <laughs> right. Little did Tracy know. That had she flipped back but one mere page, it would have been at the bottom of our other spreadsheet where we had topics we discussed but hadn't covered yet. It made me giggle. I cannot believe I missed that. Why didn't you Mm -hmm, say anything? mm -hmm. Because, you know, sometimes you are nice to me until you can save it for the podcast and drag me a little and I have to do the same. (laughs) Fair. All right, so are you ready to hear about the like the amazing but kind of dark and interesting life of Artemisia Gentileschi? Yes, because I am reasonably familiar with her artwork, but not in any way familiar with really very much of anything about her life. Yeah, that seems to be kind of standard. Um, and there's one thing about her life that if you do know, it's the one thing you know, and it kind of eclipses everything else about her, but we will get to that. So, okay, to start... You, Rowan, more than probably most people, Mm. could list a couple of Baroque painters. There's a few kind of famous ones that come to mind. Caravaggio, Bernini, Rembrandt, to name a few. Oh, thank God you did that. Thank (laughs) God, because I was sitting there going, paradise by the dashboard lights. (laughs) (laughs) If you needed to pull it out of your mind casually in a conversation, I'm sure you could have named like three more. But the second I put it on you to list a single Baroque painter... Nothing. No. Nope. Yeah, that's nope. totally fair. <laughs> I 
needed to look this up because I don't know that much about art history. And there was a woman who gave a speech called The Baroque Badassery of Artemisia Gentileschi for Odd Salon. (laughs) And she opened it up with explaining that the Baroque time period of art is, you know, if you need to figure out where it falls in history, start at the Renaissance, Michelangelo, Donatelli, all the other Ninja Ninja Turtles, go forward in time. If you've hit Marie Antoinette and Pompadours, you've gone too far. If you don't make a, if it's not Baroque, don't fix it joke before the end of this episode, I am going to quit. <laughs> oh no, I, I don't have one. I will quit. I don't have one factored in. I need, I need to come up with it on the fly. I'll try to key you up as many okay. times as humanly possible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the Baroque period falls uh, around the 16 to 1800s. Okay. And we are going to talk about a very famous Baroque painter that you might never have heard of, Artemisia Gentileschi. To quote Rachel from several circles on YouTube, celebrated for her dramatic compositions portraying biblical and mythological heroines, Gentileschi lent many of her canvases to female narratives and bequeathed a rare woman's perspective in an era otherwise dominated by the visions of men. Basically, this is the baroque art version of the current internet but mostly tiktok battle on the male gaze versus the female gaze yes we are going to talk about the female experience in this episode quite a bit gentileschi was well known and recognized even in her own time as a prolific painter but it was history that kind of erased her Her fame was largely forgotten for around 400 years until the 20th century when her work was quote-unquote rediscovered for the masterpieces they were. Sometimes this was because her father, who was also another famous painter, got credited for her work and it was hard to tell who did what. Oh, no, no. Yeah. But in her time, she was super well-respected, super well-known, famous around the world, and it was later on that history let things get really muddied and forgot about her for hundreds of years. And... I'm excited to talk to you about this topic because you grew up just so enmeshed in art. Your house is, Mm. your parents' house is full of beautiful art. They are amazing artists. It's just a world you have been a part of. So I'm excited to talk with you about it. No pressure. No, literally no pressure at all to know anything. Just care about it. That's all you got (laughs) to do. (laughs) I care a lot. Do you ever think about how... Like, names like Artemisia. That's such a good name. It is such a good name. I don't see children on my horizon. And so I can't just be like, ah, yes, I'm going to name my future child Artemisia. So if someone would like to hire me to bestow good names upon their children, I think that might have to be my future career if I want to name any peoples. Would you be open to pets as well? I just don't have any. But, like, naming them. Like, if I got a pet... Maybe open to naming. Oh, yeah. It. Okay. I've named a lot of other people's pets. <laughs> my, my pet came pre-named, and it just fit her too well. Lola. Lola. It just fit. <laughs> okay, Rowan. It is time for you to travel back in time with me. I want you to sit back and imagine that you're in Rome on a hot summer day in July of 1593. You're already mad about it. She was like, and you guys know, Rowan closed her eyes, was so ready to jump into this experience. And as soon as I said, hot summer day went, I'm not going back in time. (laughs) I just got off the magic school bus so fast. (laughs) 
Ah. Get back in. We're going for a ride. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> we are in Rome. It is 1593. The air is thick and heavy with heat. The city is bustling as people and animals move about. Women are walking around with their long skirts trailing along on the ancient cobblestones. Men and women alike are selling goods and food to anyone and everyone they can. It's crowded, noisy, vibrant, rich, and alive, and somewhere, deep in the city, a child is born. That child is the daughter of a painter, but it will be she, not her father, who will change the art world forever. Artemisia Gentileschi was born on July 8, 1593, to Prudenzia di Ottaviano Montini and the famous Tuscan painter Orazio Gentileschi. She was the only daughter and eldest child of the couple. When Artemisia was only 12 years old, her mother passed away, leaving her in the care of her father. It was likely around this time that she began to seriously follow in her father's footsteps as a painter. Her father was inspired by the innovations of his friend Caravaggio. He was a highly sought-after artist who was called upon by nobles for his work, and it was Artemisia who showed far more enthusiasm and talent for the craft than any of her brothers, and she spent much of her time in her father's workshop. Her dad actually sounds cool. I really hope that you're not going to reveal that that's not the he looked like a classic villain. He's not a villain of this story, really. He's not going to come off squeaky clean in a little bit. But he just, even in his portrait, it's, hold on, I'm pulling it up for you real quick. I want him to be cool. He sounded like he might be cool. He's cool in that he really, really just was like, you know what? My daughter is a painter. She's the best of all my kids because it was Artemisia and three brothers. He was like, she's, she's it. She's the one who's going to follow my footsteps. I'm going to train her. I'm going to teach her. So he was really cool in that way. Just so everyone knows, he looks like, you know, common depictions of satyrs where they have the, the hair tufting out by their ears and they have these long kind of spindly goatees. And this guy looks exactly like that, as if at any moment he might sprout tiny little horns out yeah. of his head and just out of the picture maybe he has a little tiny goat butt um which is fine that is neither here nor there but why can't they just stay cool i know he's fairly cool by the standards of his time i guess ish in not in the picture i sent you but there's another picture where he's got that curly q mustache and he just looks like a villain again he is not the ultimate villain of villain of this story but I'm not going to sit here and pretend that Orazio Gentileschi is the greatest man to ever walk the planet. Okay. Okay. So Artemisia is now 17 years old. It is 1610, and she signs and dates her first painting, Susanna and the Elders. According to Mary Garrard, in her book, Artemisia Gentileschi, the image of the female hero in Italian Baroque art, quote, by 1612, when she was not yet 19 years old, her father could boast of her exemplary talents, claiming that in the profession of painting, which she had practiced for three years, she had no peer. End quote. So her dad did boast about her. He was very proud of her. He was willing to let her learn this craft. That is pretty cool. We'll give him that. Right, right. Is he supporting her, though, because it's her interest and he cares about her? Is he supporting her because she can now basically behave like 
his own personal little company? You know, is this, how is this helping him is the next question. I don't know that it really helps him. Okay. I do think it is him supporting his daughter wanting to do something that is pretty masculine, but recognizing that out of all of his children, she is the best at it and prioritizing that over being a man. Okay, cool. Content warning from here on. The subjects of these paintings and her life get pretty dark. We're going to mention rape. The first painting of Artemisia shows Susanna being harassed by two older men with the horrible plan of raping her and framing her for adultery. Artemisia's portrayal was and is unique for the emphasis it puts on Susanna's distress in the situation and her attempt to refuse the men and fight back. This is instead of portraying her as a seductive temptress or even a shy but willing participant, which was sort of the standard of the time. Rowan, if you scroll down a little bit, you can see Artemisia Gentileschi's version of Susanna and the Elders as compared to her peer and contemporary, Rubens. This is interesting to me because I would have... I would have guessed wrong if Mm -hmm. I hadn't known because... Ruben's painting, well, let me just start out by saying the women, Susanna's naked. It's Baroque art. The women are always naked. They're always but, naked. Um, but in Ruben's, she's hunched over and trying to cover herself in the way that people who are naked and don't wish to be seen often do. Mm-hmm. They just use what they can, often arms and legs, to cover their naked body. And in Artemisia's, she's kind of, her form is doing the like, Oh, no. (laughs) Version. (laughs) Yeah. I think Artemisia is interesting because it's one of the few where she's pushing them away. And it's also one of the few where she's not looking at the viewer. In so many of them, in these paintings, Susanna is looking at the viewer or the men are looking at the viewer as like, hey, you're a willing participant. Or she's looking like, oh, me? Just sitting naked on this field? Like, it's very – I chose Rubens because it actually – I really liked in some ways how similar it is to Artemisia's because he does have her looking distressed. Um, and there's a ton of different versions of Suzanne and the Elders, but they weren't all Baroque. And I really wanted to highlight a famous Baroque painter who painted something similar to her around the same time. Artemisia's is very physical. She's physically pushing them away. Whereas Rubens, she's hunched over and covering herself. And that's the big difference that I see. And this is her first mm-hmm. She's painting. 17 years old. I would I look forward to seeing more of her artwork when she gets older because to my eyes this work of Artemisia's embodies so much of like showing off what men will find desirable. Like, ooh, look at her hair. It's it's being mm-hmm. dramatically pulled in one direction. Like, ah, oh, yes, we're strategically revealing a breast, even though she's she's naked and she doesn't want to be. And like, yeah, you know, the vagina area is covered, but only just barely. You know, we're right. still getting the V situation on the stomach versus Rubens. She's, for the most part, almost completely covered except for like a little bit of the buttocks area and when i look at ruben's painting the way that susanna's looking at the viewer feels more like a condemnation mm-hmm. so it it feels more like 
a negative take on the subject matter of the painting, and Artemisia's feels more like, let me provide some sexual imagery for you in a safe way, because this is a Bible story, and this is Baroque art, and that that surprises me. She actually isn't afraid to do that. I will say the thing that I really like about Artemisia Gentileschi's work is that she isn't afraid to show the good and the bad of everything. She won't make a woman more beautiful for the sake of the painting. She'll show them as they really are. She'll show the flaws. And I think she also leaned into sensationalism and her clients would want things that were a little bit more risque. And she leaned into that. She wasn't afraid of that. But she would do it in her own way. The other thing I really like about her version of Suzanne and the Elders is that the men are very creepy. In Rubens, they seem just kind of like chill old men. One is holding a fabric that it looks like Suzanne was wearing, and the other one is leaning down gently over her with a hand kind of near her. In Artemisia's, one looks like he's pulling her hair. They're whispering to each other. They just look dirtier and creepier that i do feel from hers very viscerally that's that's so funny i think it's just because the subject matter that i have been reading working on other episodes i really i i fell for a trick you didn't mean to play i really (laughs) thought that rubens would have been artemisia's because the men specifically don't look creepy and i think it's just because you and i have been talking so much about how in in life you can't always tell who the creepy men are. Oh, yes. And I just completely put that narrative onto these paintings. That's so... Context matters. Context matters. We love art, baby. So if you ever look up this painting by Rubens, Suzanne and the Elders by Rubens... They will be on our Instagram. It will be on our Instagram. Um, If you want to follow along with this episode and pull it up, you can. He was known for using a lot of browns, and he was likely painting on a black or brown canvas, which is something that Baroque painters did to really emphasize the difference between light and dark, the play of colors. Um, And between that and the varnish used to protect the canvases, his paintings tend to just be a lot darker. the, The clay and the mineral pigments he would use that were readily available tended to be those muddier browns, and Artemisia really loved to use bright colors. Mm-hmm. And she used them very well. I will also say this particular painting aside, but just Baroque art in general, if the types of bodies that are being thrown in your face in 2021 uh, is getting your goat, Baroque art is really great if you want to see a lot of beautiful human beings that are mid-sized people just being gorgeous and not yes. embodying that honoring that stereotypical <laughs> modern yes especially rubens i do <laughs> love he honors the tummy roll he honors that that thigh squish and we love that <laughs> so i love a thigh squish <laughs> and you'll see more of that as uh, artemisia gets a little bit older and her work changes but this piece by her suzanne and the elders not only foreshadows her success as an artist especially around the female experience, but also a very dark event that will change the course of her life forever. One year after this painting in 1611, her father, Orazio, was working with a fellow painter named Agostino Tassi. The two were decorating the vaults of Casino del Muse inside the Palazzo Pallavicini Rospogliosi in Rome. One day, while her father was out, Artemisia was alone in the family house. At least she thought she was alone. 
because Agostino Tassi was there. She was working in her father's studio when Agostino came in, and he'd been trying for a long time to get her alone, and after finally succeeding, he asked her to look at a painting near the bedroom with him. Once outside the room, he pushed her inside and raped her. There are full details of her account of the attack, but I, I will not go into those here. There are recorded details from her? Yes, we will get into it. There are hundreds of pages of a court document of her taking him to court. Oof. Yeah. This is the big thing in her life that if you know anything about uh, Artemisia Gentileschi, this is what people know about even more than her artwork. I did not. I am glad to hear it because it is definitely the one thing that I did know about her. I'd listened to a podcast years ago talking about her and her successes in the art world, but this is a big sensational thing. And even in the time, it was extremely sensationalized and it made her famous in a really negative way. So throughout the history and time, it is the thing that has stuck about her that people know. After the attack, Agostino promised to marry Artemisia to restore her virtue so long as they kept up a sexual relationship. He kept postponing the marriage and making excuses, and it soon became clear that he had no intentions of keeping his promise. When her father found out what Tassie had done, he demanded the case be brought to trial for the crimes against the family name. This case could only be brought to trial because Artemisia was a virgin when she was attacked, and thus, he had taken something from the family. Both Cosimo Corley, who was accused of attempted rape and had stolen one of Artemisia's painting, and who helped Augustino plan the visit to her house when her father was absent, he and Augustino Tassi were charged. Both men were let into the house by the woman living in the upstairs apartment named Tuzia, a woman who claimed to be Artemisia's friend until this incident. Afterwards, she claimed no knowledge of what had happened, and this betrayal deeply affected Artemisia. <sighs> There's so much to unpack there, mm -hmm. and many of it is just surface-level awfulness that we are all very aware of. It is so interesting going into the rest of this story that I know you're about to tell me because I know you, yeah. with the idea in mind that this trial was only able to happen because... Raping a virgin is a crime against the family name, mm -hmm. which means that it was a crime against her father. Yes. And that's why he was able to take it to court. I do Oof. think he was genuinely horrified by what happened. and Right, right. But your, your dad being horrified does not necessarily a trial make. Right. Right. And it was known that... Augustino was obsessed with Artemisia. He'd been trying to get her alone for a while. Everyone knew. And, and, and in the trial, it came out that he was really creepy and predatory towards her. And so he coordinated the situation where he was alone with her and then attacked her. And she goes into full detail in the trial of exactly what happened. And you can read it if you really want to. It's all online, but I don't recommend it. It's not going to get you anything. Except it's just horrible. Do we know if the woman living upstairs knew what would happen letting the men in? It seems like she was aware of, if not their explicit intentions, their questionable character and 
the way they had been treating Artemisia for a while, both of them. She's not painted in a good light from everything I could see. Okay. So they go to trial, and it was a seven-month trial during which it was discovered that Augustino Tassi had planned to murder his wife, had engaged in adultery with his sister-in-law, and planned to steal some of Orazio's paintings. Artemisia didn't even know that Tassi was married until the trial, where it was revealed that he couldn't have married her, even if he'd wanted to, as he was already married to a missing but presumed dead woman. He is a horrible villain. Absolutely, in his own time, was known as a horrible villain. He was an artist, and some, I think it was a pope or noble, said, I like him because you know he's a bad guy and you know what you're going to get. Paraphrasing. I wonder what her life would have looked like if she had married him. Oh, if God. things had gone differently and right. she had to marry that man. I think nothing good could have come out of it. Truly. Oh, I don't think, I don't know how long she would have lived given that he, it's, it was kind of just like, yeah, he killed his wife. Like everyone was just like, that's what he did. Why do I feel like you're not going to serve me so much goodness moving forward? Not for a little bit. So, <sighs> Jonathan Jones writes for The Guardian, The resulting trial lasted seven months and shocked Rome. It made Gentileschi a celebrity in the worst possible way. Amazingly, every word of this court case survives in a transcript that opens a window onto the lives of artists in the age of Caravaggio. Gentileschi speaks to us from this 400-year-old document with a voice that is eloquent, courageous, and compelling. It is a rare example of a woman in the pre-modern era taking a stance against the oppression that was just a part of day-to-day -day life. End quote. Wow, thank goodness that that transcript survived. That's amazing. It is. It, it's really impressive. I'm not that surprised that some form of it survived just because it wasn't a nothing case in the middle of nowhere. It was a very famous sensationalized case that happened to the daughter of a famous painter who was already making waves in the art community by a famous painter who was sought after by nobles. Regardless, it is still so incredible that it survives, but it is not a, not a nice document to read. I can't even get my paperback books not to get all messed up at the corners. So the idea that a 400-year-old document could survive word for word in a way that we can read is just freaking phenomenal. Yes, let us enjoy this moment of appreciating history surviving because I'm about to get into one more Deep, well, one of two more kind of deep down lows before we come back up on this roller coaster. Certainly. And of course, this is a document describing a horrific historical incident. It would be lovely if it were a document describing sunshine and rainbows. But the fact that this happened to this woman and we still get to learn about it and remember her is. It's just. It's so rare. I think it's good that we get to learn and remember her for her bravery in this trial and her voice against what happened to her. And, and we get to see her as a, a whole person, not a victim. Again, it's not like we can go back and say to past people, like, look at this thing that will happen. But it is nice to be a young woman in 2021 and say, well, you know, I... I know better how to have compassion for this woman that mm -hmm. she didn't receive. And though, unfortunately, I don't think it serves her, <laughs> at least at least that gets to happen at all. Yes. 
So this trial was nothing short of a horrific ordeal for Artemisia Gentileschi. Eventually, the judge ordered her to be tortured to prove her honesty. So she was what? tortured with the Sibyl. What the f- Yup. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and just to make sure you're fully aware, Augustino Tassi, her rapist. No, no need to be tortured to prove his innocence. Only her. Put in a chair with the Sibyl, or thumb screws, which involves cords of rope tied around her hands and pulled tightly, she had to sit across from her rapist with her hands being destroyed as she was tortured because they believed that a certain level of pain would make you speak the truth. During this torture, she was repeatedly asked whether or not Tassie had raped her. While she had to look him in the eye and she never budged, she continually responded, it is true, it is true, it is true, it is true. Oh no, her hands. She's a painter. Yeah. Eventually, she was able to recover and her hands were okay, but they did serious damage to them during this. It's horrible. It's ju- it's just horrible. She had to... She had to have the horrible experience of sexual assault. Continuing afterwards, because he forced her into a relationship that it could in no way be described as consensual, even if she eventually thought maybe she was developing feelings for him. He kept promising to marry her. She said at one point during the trial, I would have happily married you or something along those lines. She said, I would, I was going to marry you. And had to be poked and prodded and inspected and not believed, which women today have that experience of going to trial and not being believed, but... Yeah, here's the thing about trials. (laughs) When women are sexually assaulted or physically harmed and they have to participate in the trial of the person who inflicted those ills upon them, the woman or person, frankly, is, God, I wish I could be articulate about this. Okay. So the person has to go and basically be a witness to the crime. They are now evidence because Mm -hmm. the person that is putting them on the trial is the state or the government or the prosecution. It is not them. And so the fact that they are describing their rape, their assault, their loved one's murder, it's not about them getting justice. It's about them being a commodity to someone else's version of what justice is. Yeah. I, I, I Like you said, it's hard to put it eloquently because this is something you just live day to day knowing that were something to happen to you and you had to go to court over it. It is always, what did you do? What was your blame in it? How can we justify what happened? You see it with all kinds of crimes. Someone does something small and they're like, well, they had this thing in their pocket. So therefore it justifies being murdered? So therefore it justifies being attacked? That's the problem. It's evidence. Witnesses get cross-examined. You, When you present information, someone else on the other side is trying to tear it apart. That is the nature of a trial. And that is why it is so traumatizing for people right because by nature someone is standing there going nah probably not right can you prove it it that's the that is the fatal flaw mm-hmm. there are not two sides to every story some stories have one side some stories have a hundred sides and it, that is more than i mean i know our judicial system is about innocent till proven guilty about seeing both sides of it but it is just oh yeah <laughs> yeah, it's broken. It's very broken. We're not we're not going to dive deeper into it here, but the last 
depressing part of this is that while Tassi was found guilty and sentenced to be exiled from Rome, that sentence was not really ever carried out, though his good name was ruined forever. He didn't even get exiled. No. I think he eventually left Rome because he just couldn't find work there anymore, but no, the worst he got was he was exiled and he wasn't even really exiled. Listen, patriarchy, hi, it's Rowan, your your friend. Um, <laughs> if you are going to use women in power, women with affluence, white women, women who get infantilized often, if you're going to use us as a means of convincing the public that the police state is the only way to keep vulnerable groups safe, <laughs> then you should maybe occasionally follow through on the bare minimum that fits into your narrative. And exiling a man that attacks your affluent, rich, infantilized woman really would help your goal of maintaining power. I'm just <laughs> surprised they even found him guilty. I think that was them doing the bare minimum in their eyes. So art, though. <laughs> well, okay, so bef before we get back into the art, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what this does for Artemisia, just in terms of the way she's perceived in history. And what I want to say is that there is more to Artemisia Gentileschi than the sexual assault that happened to her. Defining her and her art by a singular experience is a reductive way to view her work at best and a harmful one at worst, because doing so implies that she is only as good of an artist as her suffering. No one is entirely made of a singular experience, and Artemisia Gentileschi was more than this horrible assault and the subsequent trial. I will not pretend that it didn't color the way she worked as an artist or how she conducted herself in her life, but I will also not belittle her work by implying that it was her sole motivator for the rest of her life and career. I mean, what's the, the famous bit of information everybody loves to talk about? Vincent van Gogh probably saw yellows more vibrantly, yellow being a color featured in lots of his most famous paintings because he was seeking help for his mental illness and one of those things involved foxglove and foxglove as an ingredient makes people see yellow more richly get help for your mental health issues your suffering does not make you a better artist thank you for right. coming to my ted talk and no one <laughs> no one should ever imply that tassi did anything to help her what he did may have colored her work but it did not improve it she was an incredible artist before him, and she would continue on to eclipse him in both fame and skill for the rest of her life and in history, and no one owes anything to their suffering. So he's exiled from our podcast. Yes. Okay. One more quote about, a couple more quotes about this. I really dug into this. I have a lot of feelings about the way that she's been perceived through history. Go for it. Mary O'Neill, writing for Smithsonian, states that scholars disagree about the significance of the rape in her work. Wealthy patrons with a taste for violence and eroticism may have had as much to do with her subject matter as painful memories. Furthermore, fewer than a quarter of Artemisia's known paintings feature vengeful women. While Judith Mann, curator of the St. Louis Art Museum, states that, We don't give Artemisia her due if we see her in that rut, and we are probably missing a lot because of that expectation. Mann goes on to say that sex and gender can offer valid interpretive strategies for Artemisia's art, but we may wonder whether these gendered readings have created too narrow an expectation. We say that Artemisia's full creative power emerged only in the depiction of strong, assertive women, 
that she would not engage in conventional religious imagery such as Madonna and the Child, and that she refused to yield her personal interpretation to suit the tastes of her presumably male clientele. This stereotype has the doubly restricting effect of causing scholars to question the attribution of pictures that do not conform to the model, and to value less highly those that do not fit the mold as being true works of Artemisia. These limit our ability to see her as a fully rounded artist of her time creating work for all different kinds of clientele and instead put her in a strong, rebellious woman box. So, what happened during her time in this life was monstrous. It was hard to research, it was hard to write, and it was hard to talk about, but it's important to know and understand how little control she had over her own existence and how much control the men around her did have, and why the eventual control she took over her own life was so important. That response, both yours and the quote, are, are very wise responses in some way to the idea that for a woman to be powerful especially in media of all kinds, she needs to be fighting Mm -hmm. like loudly, like with a sword or doing something aggressive. And in fact, many of the ways in which women or people are powerful is through compassion and quiet. Yes, that was what I took out of the episode and researching it and writing it. There's strength in... There's there's a lot of strength in finding quiet ways to use power and in finding ways to subvert the system you were in without Mm. needing to be... The brash, loud voice. It, it it makes me think of when you read books where it's like the protagonist is a, a independent young woman. And you're like, oh, she's just going to be mean to everyone, huh? <laughs> and compared to when you read books where there are genuinely strong female leads who like feminine things, who who find ways around their systems, who push and pull and know when to fight and know when to step back. That is... I think what she brought to this world, more than just this idea of her as a brash feminist icon. I'm watching, well, I'm rewatching Penny Dreadful right now, and I've gotten to a point in the series in which this very powerful leading lady portrayed by Eva Green is uh, brought to her knees because she doesn't have all her allies around her. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that this show is tackling the fact that allies are just as an important part of being a strong, powerful woman in that case, person in most. Mm -hmm. Because having allies is a power that comes from compassion and empathy and caring. You don't have allies because you're loud and angry. You have allies because you cultivate healthy relationships. (laughs) Right. Right. I completely agree. Okay, so we've talked about that. Now it's time to move past the trial. One month after the trial, her father married her to a little-known Florentine artist by the name of Pier Antonio di Vincenzo Stiatesi, and the two left Rome for Florence shortly thereafter. While in Florence, Artemisia and Pier Antonio had five children. Wow. Giovanni, Battista, Agnolia, and Lisabella. Those four did not survive for more than a year. Their second son, Cristofano, died at the age of five, after Artemisia had returned to Rome. Only their eldest, Prudentia, survived into adulthood, though she would follow her mother's footsteps and become a painter. Oof. Yeah. While in Florence, Artemisia earned the patronage of the Medici Duke Cosimo II. Four years after her move to Florence in 1616, she became the first woman accepted into the Academy of the Arts and Drawing, 
She would continue on to make important and influential relationships with the Duchess Christina of Lorraine and famously Galileo Galilei. Ugh, okay. <laughs> we won't get into the Medici family, but I love it when they are mentioned in stories mm -hmm. because at their base level, just their name, they are the perfect example of the fact that supporting the arts makes you just as an important part of arts existing as the artist. Yeah. Ooh, we got to explore that. Uh, in a whole, we got to do a whole episode of the Medicis. They are... Yes. Yes. <laughs> they are insane. There's a whole lot of stories there. But it was uh, Artemisia's relationship with Galileo that may have influenced her painting from Michelangelo Baronati the Younger, a younger relative of that Michelangelo, for <laughs> whom she was paid three times as much as any other artist to paint the allegory of inclination for his home. For this piece, Artemisia painted the form of a nude young woman holding a compass. That compass was inspired by Galileo Galilei. These times at which there are a bunch of artists who go on to be very famous, we get this picture kind of in the salons that Hemingway spent time in, mm -hmm. uh, Gertrude Stein, you know, all those good ones. Wouldn't you just, just absolutely kill to be able to sit in those rooms with all those artists? Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. It'd either be the most incredible conversation or the most unbelievably infuriating experience. Oh, it might be insufferable, but I still want to get in there at least once. Yeah, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. And it makes you wonder, like, have you ever been in a room with a bunch of people who are going to go on and become titans of whatever they're trying to create? I'm doing it right now, baby. I'm talking to you. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> that made me feel feelings anyway. <laughs> All right. So I am going to read to you a little story I wrote kind of exploring the thoughts of Artemisia. And it was really fun. I really struggled with what to write this week because, you know, there's one big moment in her life people like to talk about. And I was not going to write a story about that. So I was actually talking with my sister and she said, why don't you start thinking about the way that people mix paint? So I started looking into that. And then it turned into me writing just this internal monologue. Was this Jamie? Yeah, of course. It was my twin sister. <laughs> I love Jamie. <laughs> so I'm going to read to you my internal monologue as Artemisia Gentileschi. To me, there are few things in this world more perfect than the sight of linseed oil dropped onto a palette which has been coated in a finely milled pile of lapis lazuli dust. Few artists can afford the rich blue pigment, as the stone must be mined from the Middle East and brought all the way to Italy. But I can afford it. And I plan to use it well, and not just for the Virgin Mary, as most artists reserve the color, but for all women. Some say that Jan van Eyck invented oil painting, but that's not true. He merely elevated the art form. As his peer, I learned quite a lot from watching him paint, observing his techniques, and seeing his process. But I was determined to surpass him. And why shouldn't I? Was I not a member of the Academy of Arts and Drawing? The first woman to achieve such an accolade, no less. He was a man. A talented man, but a man nonetheless. One who produced art with the same perspective and painting the same stories as hundreds of men had before him. I could already see the painting in my mind's eye as I mixed the colors together, blending my concoction until the paint reached the right consistency. This was as much an art form as the painting itself. 
prepping the ingredients, mixing the colors, priming the canvas. All of it was fundamental to the success of the painting. Beeswax, linseed oil, clay, calcified bone, and mineral pigments, these were my meager offerings. Raw ingredients blended together harmoniously to create the thick piles of wet paint that I would use to tell a story. There was a small delight in stirring the perfect pigment and finding the right color in discovering a new way to blend and merge and mix until the painting bent to my will. In this small way, I was a god, and this canvas was my world. I would create and destroy and build and rebuild until I made perfection, until my story was complete and until everything was as I wished it to be. Men attacked their paintings with brutality, breaking and bending them to their wills. They come at their art with a head-on attack, but I... I spoke to my art, gently coaxing the subject into the light and breathing life into them with each small word. Such was the nature of my work compared to theirs. I wanted to learn and grow with each painting, and my fellow men wanted to dominate their own. Some might call it a weakness to be so delicate in my work, to be so soft and gentle with each caress of brush to canvas, but I know better. I know there is no strength in brutality, no courage in raw power. Strength and courage come from those who choose to wield it despite the odds. Anger is easy. Hate is simple. Violence is a more readily available satisfaction than patience, but that does not mean it is the right choice to make. Sometimes the best revenge is to show them all how little they mean to you. And it doesn't hurt to be so infinitely better at them in their own craft that they must bow before you in awe and reverence. That is true power. That is true strength, and that is what I hold in my hand each time I pick up a brush and a palette of paint. I will never again bow to anyone but the muse that guides my hand across the canvas, for she is the only one that wields power over me now and I thank her each day for the strength she has given me and the courage that allows me to be better than every man I have ever met and refuse to pretend otherwise. When I look back at the canvas, I realize that a pair of eyes was staring back at me. I had painted them in such a state of blindness as to be shocked to see them so clearly defined and glaring back at me with the same intensity of passion I felt in my chest. I smiled, ready to meet the newest subject of mine as she emerged from the canvas. I could feel her already, and I could tell she would be a woman of strength and power, and I was eager to make her acquaintance. All right, then, I whispered to her. Let us begin. So having not known the, like, one big true horrible story of Artemisia until this moment, this story that you told does feel in some ways informed by that history. It really excites me to hear this <laughs> from your perspective. I was really glad earlier when you said that you don't need to be a woman fighting to be strong because that's really what it informed that story. I didn't I sat down intending to write a story about mixing paint and painting this picture inspired by her friend Galileo and how she was paid more than other people and the pride in her work and then it just became this inner monologue of anger and frustration about being a woman in a male-dominated space, about the way that people view power 
and strength and how frustrating it is to see what to you is is genuine strength internally be explained as weakness externally. It doesn't surprise me because writing and painting are often both described as sort of an exorcism of internal demons. Yeah. <laughs> that idea is coming out both for you and for the character for whom you're writing. That makes complete sense to me. I like that. I um, It's so interesting to me to hear the Artemisia of your story speaking in that way, because I think very often in a lot of modern media, um, men who paint and participate in the arts are lumped in with traditionally feminine ways of behaving. We tend to look at men who participate in those activities as effeminate, quote unquote, when in fact, during this time period in Artemisia's world, it was a male-dominated industry. It and was. I think we forget that. It was. It was male-dominated. And keep in mind, it was a job. It was a craft. It was a, a man's world and it was a business. It was not this free-thinking artist floating about. It was – you were part of a guild. You were part of this business world as an artist needing to please your clients to make a name for yourself and it was very competitive and masculine i wish i had a way in this moment to read the actual writings of a male artist from the time talking about how they view their work or themselves or their industry because i would be interested to know if our view of what is masculine, traditionally masculine, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. the the big capital M society version of masculine, if it would be the same for them or if there would be a little bit, bit more room for things that we tend to that we tend to think of as kind of women's work or women's ideals right. now. I would be curious, too, to, to explore that more, explore femininity and masculinity throughout history and the way that it's been coded and conversationalized. Coded. God bless you for getting the <laughs> gosh darn word. Anytime. Well, no, not anytime. Very rarely when it comes to me. Paradise by the dashboard lights. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So moving on to some more history of her life. According to Elizabeth Cropper for the National London Gallery... In 2011, Francesco Salinas discovered a collection of 36 letters dating from about 1616 to 1620 that had startling context to the personal and financial life of the Gentileschi family in Florence. They show that Artemisia had a passionate love affair with a wealthy Florentine nobleman named Francesco Maria Maringhi. Her husband, Pier Antonio Steazzi, was well aware of the relationship, and he maintained a correspondence with Maringhi on the back of Artemisia's love letters. No. -uh. Oh, yeah. He tolerated it, presumably, because Marinki was a powerful ally who provided the couple financial support. However, by 1620, rumors of the affair had begun to spread in the Florentine court, and this, combined with the ongoing legal and financial problems, led them to relocate to Rome. End quote. That is very punk rock. Right? She was making moves. She had a relationship with this man for four years. He financed her husband's debts and the financial troubles the family had, and he just, her husband just had to deal with it because he was not doing great. 
Maybe her husband dealt with it graciously. I don't know. I want I want him, I want to. him to have dealt with it graciously, but Okay, mm. you know what? Sure, I have a life to lead, you have a life to lead. We're well adjusted adult people. This will be fine. Spoiler alert. It was not fine. <laughs> Sometime around 1620, she moved to Rome and took a house on Via del Corso with her husband and daughter Prudentia. Financial distress and her husband's jealousy continued to erode the marriage until one night in 1622, after finding a group of Spaniards on his doorstep serenading his wife, her husband allegedly slashed one of them in the face and later walked out on Artemisia and his daughter Prudentia. I had it for one paragraph. I had that dream. Yeah, I know. So... Now Artemisia is a single mother taking care of her daughter Prudentia, but she found commissions hard to come by, and in 1627, she moved to Venice, where she received a commission from Philip IV of Spain to paint a companion piece to the Peter Paul Rubens and Anthony Van Dyck's Discovery of Achilles. Two years later, fleeing the plague of 1630, which wiped out one-third of Venice's population, Artemisia moved to Naples, which was then under Spanish rule. There, she completed the first altarpiece of her career and a public commission for a major church honors that had eluded her, perhaps because of her gender. Pope Urban VIII believed women didn't have the energy to carry out large-scale altarpieces, and thus she had been continuously passed over for such opportunities. Yeah, Rowan's annoyed face says it all. I keep trying to go benefit of the doubt on this, and from one sentence to the next. <laughs> no, yeah, it's not great. Over the years, Artemisia would repeatedly complain about the pitfalls of competing in an exclusively male domain. Quote, you feel sorry for me because a woman's name raises doubts until her work is seen, she wrote to her last major patron, Don Antonio Rufio. She was angry at having to haggle over prices and constantly defend the value and originality of her art. Quote, if I were a man, she declared, I can't imagine it would have turned out this way. End quote. Pay artists their rate. Everyone, please, for the love of all that is good and holy in this world, pay artists a living wage. Don't barter. Respect the prices they set for themselves. Their time and effort is worth it. Truly, it is so important. That's all I've got. Please just... There's no joke there. Please just pay artists a living wage. <laughs> this isn't funny. This is serious. <laughs> it was the first thing Rowan and I talked about when we approached Taylor Ash, who wrote all the music you hear for this entire podcast, was how do we make sure, as a baby podcast, we can still find a way to pay this person what she deserves. It is interesting to me, artists are always the people who are like, I'm going to pay the artists, but are often not the people who are like, someone please pay me. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, Taylor has a new single out. What yes. is it called? So by the time that you guys are listening to this, it's been out for a little while. So if you haven't listened to it yet already. End of the line. Yes. It's end of the line. It's end of the line. Please listen to it. End of the line. Her new single. It's amazing. Her other single, Void, is, I think it was my number two most listened to song on Spotify last year. <laughs> <laughs> Spotify keeps putting her music on every single genre playlist it makes for me even when the genre is so far from that like it could be christmas music and they'd be like you want taylor ash right and i'm like yes, yes i thank do you, thank you spotify. so much spotify yes <laughs> <laughs> so anyway back to ancient 
lady artists yeah. who are having a rough life. All right. Back to Artemisia Gentileschi. So in 1638, at 45 years old, Artemisia was invited to the court of Charles I of England in London. And this is where her father had been the court painter since 1626. Her father, Orazio Gentileschi, had made his name as the only Italian painter in London and one of the first artists to introduce the style of Caravaggio to England. There are other Italian painters in London who are just like, that guy sucks. Yeah. No one knows about us. Like hipsters. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine a bunch of 1620s hipsters? Yes, I love it. (laughs) I want that cosplay. (laughs) Cosplay. Yes. All right. I'm going to go large as a 1620s Italian Baroque painter hipster. Why does that Italian Baroque painter have really intense eyeliner? (laughs) Why does he keep saying you've probably never heard of it? (laughs) I didn't know they made gowns and flannel. Stop. Get out. You're fired. You mean hired. (laughs) That was, no, it was too good. (laughs) Oh. All right. So despite the fact that Artemisia and her father, Orazio, had not seen each other for more than 17 years, there's really little record of the two of them having a reunion at all. Kind of seems like they just met up and started working together. It's been suggested that she worked alongside her father on an allegorical fresco for the Greenwich residence of Charles I's wife, Queen Henrietta Maria. However... Orazio died in 1639 at the age of 75, and it's possible that Artemisia's assistance was necessary for the completion of the significant project, particularly because Orazio would have been an elderly man by that time, probably afflicted with, you know, the effects of having been a painter for the last 50-plus years of his life. My friend, very tall Catherine, named aptly because she is in fact quite tall, Mm -hmm. Uh, I named her that when I was a wee child, she... Always sends me amazing myth books. She's the best. But she pointed out to me the other day that even if she could go back in time, she would not want to because there is no reason for her to exist before penicillin. Mm -hmm. And that hit me in a very intense way as someone who doesn't give much thought to penicillin while covering these stories. I'm good living in today's time. Um, I'll just use my fantasy books to escape to what I want history to be. We're going to have to make Rosalind and Thea encounter penicillin at some point. I mean, they just use magic to solve all all of their medicine needs. I found a spell scroll for antibiotics. (laughs) (laughs) What could this be? (laughs) All right. So it is likely that Artemisia Gentileschi stayed in London for a few years, but we know she was gone by the Civil War of 1642, though little is known about her whereabouts, other than she likely moved back to Naples. She maintained close friendships and possible relationships with fellow painters and is seen as a clear influence on many of their works. Historians know that in 1649, she was in Naples again, corresponding with Don Antonio Rufo of Sicily, who became her mentor during this time in her life. The last known letter to her mentor dated 1650, and it makes clear that she was still fully active. She was likely accepting commissions until 1654, but it's believed she passed away during the plague that swept through Naples in 1656. 
But that's all we know about the death of Artemisia Gentileschi. For a long time, they thought she died in around 1652 to 1654. And then they found the letter of her accepting commissions as late as 1654. Could you imagine being that person that's just holding a piece of paper that definitively confirms a bit of information that was not previously known? Oh, the dream. Are you kidding? That's like every kid who wanted to be an archaeologist's dream. Is it? Maybe it was just my dream as a kid. No, I, well... Yeah, I was just going to say, no, that's everyone's dream. But me being able to relate to your dream does not in everyone make. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it does make me want to be one of those people that writes more things down on paper rather than storing things digitally. Because everyone likes to pretend like digital storage is forever. And it sure ain't. Um, As someone who has lost many a writings to many a laptops. Fountain pens. I think fountain pens are the solution. I'm left-handed. I can't do fountain pens. The, the ink flows too well, and my hand just goes right through it. Huh. How very uh, dark academia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll just wipe my, my hand across my brow, and I've got that cool, mysterious ink stain on my forehead. One day when someone discovers a paper that's attributed to you, and it's not smeared, a real expert on Tracy Harrison will go, no, no. She was left-handed. We know better. Mm -hmm. You forged this document. And then dramatic music will play and the film will begin. <gasps> the beginning of the film. Ooh, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to talk a little bit about the legacy of Artemisia Gentileschi because I think it is very complex and controversial. While she was well-known and well-respected in her time, she was largely forgotten or her work was mistaken for her father's after her death. Her work was only rediscovered in the 1900s by the Caravaggio scholar Roberto Longhi. However, much of her life and her work are overshadowed by exaggerated and overtly sexual interpretations. This may be due to a book sensationalizing her life written by Anna Bonatti, the wife of Roberto Longhi, in 1947. The effects of this book can still be felt today. That's so interesting to hear that it was a book written by a woman mm -hmm. that is influencing this story so long term, but that it is now looked upon in such a dramatically different light than her interpretation. I mean, it was written in 1947, far before the 70s and 80s feminist renaissance of rethinking how we look at women of the past, so... Between the time period, her mindset, perhaps her husband's mindset, what was able to be found mm. about Artemisia. Are we looking at a woman writing from the perspective of the male gaze? Rowan, we might just be. We might just be. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, a distinct shift in the way historians and the general public talked about Artemisia came about in the 70s and 80s with the rise of the feminist movement. Not only was she now portrayed less as an overtly sexual temptress, but the focus shifted back to her artistic achievements and her contributions to art history. I believe that above all else, Artemisia Gentileschi should be remembered for her skill and her ability to dominate in an almost exclusively male profession. I would definitely stand by that, having now, thank you to your research, put numerous paintings of hers and others in front of me at the same time. She without a doubt, 
personal history aside, is just incredibly skilled. Full she's stop. She's so good. Yes. She's so talented. She has such an awareness of light and texture. And yes. th- that that was a big focus during that time period in general. But she just mm-hmm. does it with such a distinctive hand. Mm-hmm. What is I the ter- uh, what is the term for that? Chiaroscuro? Is that what it is? Don't make me answer that. <laughs> N- no thoughts. Only only podcast. Paradise by the dashboard lights. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Chiaroscuro is the play of light and dark in paintings, which was really popular in the Baroque period. I knew I saw it a lot in my research, and it was stuck back there somewhere in my brain. Okay, really quick. Everyone who's not my parents, you can just tune out for just the quick sec. Yes, my parents listen to our podcast. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. I know you were screaming that term. I know. I know you taught me better. (laughs) I'm so sorry. It's No Thoughts Only Podcast, Only Paradise by the Dashboard Lights, playing on infinite repeat. Thank you so much. All right, Tracy, continue. (laughs) Thank you for coming back, everyone who is not Rowan's parents. We are happy to have you again. We're going to talk about Baroque painting and some of Artemisia's most famous works. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I'm excited for this. I'm excited to hear your thoughts, Rowan. According to Visual Arts Cork, in general, Baroque painting was a reflection of the profound political and cultural changes then emerging across Europe. Baroque painting coincided, broadly speaking, with the 17th century although the term embraced a bewildering variety of styles. It was characterized by two things, a sense of grandeur, or sensuous richness, plus an overt emotional context. It was through these two elements that Baroque painters sought to evoke emotional states in the viewer by appealing to the senses, often in dramatic ways. My crypt. Characterized by two things, a sense of grandeur, or sensuous richness, Plus an overt emotional content. (laughs) Sold. I'll make sure that happens for you. Bold of me to assume. Bold of you to think (laughs) that I'd die without you. (laughs) Very presumptuous of me to assume that you're going first. you to think that you wouldn't be trapped in the same situation that takes me down. <laughs> Find an hour crypt. <gasps> you don't get your a own crypt. A willing and fable crypt. A willing and fable crypt. Okay, patrons, if you're wondering where your money's going to. <laughs> <laughs> On top of our tiny plot of land in Scotland. Amazing. Oh, the dream. Okay, all right, all right, all right. The term Baroque was initially used with the derogatory meaning to underline the excesses of its emphasis. In particular, the term was used to describe its eccentric redundancy and noisy abundance of details, which sharply contrasted the clear and sober rationality of the Renaissance. (laughs) Okay, first of all, it's amazing (laughs) what time will do to people's interpretations of things. I know. It's it's ancient camp, basically. Or rather, camp is new baroque right and now we think of us we think of baroque as like dark and dramatic when someone describes like i want my wedding to be baroque or i want my house baroque you think dark you think heavy drapery rich bold dark colors which is so different from the way they're describing it as like it's excessive and like campy which is like bright and fun and glitter 
I don't know. A, a wedding that is distinctly Baroque would definitely be excessive and campy. Yeah, I said what I said. No, I believe you. I actually, the more I think about it, if you go full Baroque, if you're not just like, I'm inspired by it, if you go full Baroque with like heavy drapery, dark roses everywhere, bowls of fruit, first of all, please invite me. Second of all, that would be, <laughs> that would be a, a, a version of camp that I could get behind. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So during or shortly after the trial in 1612, Artemisia Gentileschi painted one of her most famous paintings, Judith slaying Holofernes, in which she depicts the gruesome biblical scene. Famously, she depicts herself as Judith and Augustino Tassi as Holofernes. She revisited the subject once again a few years later, sometime between 1614 and 1620, though it's estimated she actually painted this about six times throughout her life. I love the idea of her coming back and back again to this Old Testament imagery as a way for her to place herself in that world. Yeah. At least once, if not many of the other times. That's that's very punk rock of her. She places herself into paintings a bunch. She has a, a ton of really cool self-portraits. She's got a self-portrait of herself as St. Catherine, a self-portrait of her as the allegory of painting, a self-portrait of her as a flute player. She's got a bunch of different self-portraits of her as something, which I find really interesting. I'm not a flute player, but if I had been, I would have also been awesome at it, she said. And by flute, I mean lute. That one's on me. It's a lute. <laughs> <laughs> it's distinctly a lute. <laughs> to quote Tuscany Villas talking about the idea of painting Judith slaying Holofernes, they say, It's a common scene in art since the early Renaissance. It was still popular in Baroque art and had been painted by the likes of Caravaggio, Giorgione, Rembrandt, and Peter Paul Rubens previously, but never quite like this. In other artist depictions, the decapitation is an easy, methodical thing, but in Gentileschi's work, it is a physical, brutal thing. A handmaid helps to hold Holofernes down while Holofernes struggles and Judith strains to behead him. Blood sprays from his wound and both women frown and tense in their efforts. Both women are small in comparison to the hulking Holofernes. There's a good reason for this brutality. Judith is modeled on herself, and a fellow artist, Augustino Tassi, is depicted as the figure of Holofernes. Gentileschi's biographer, Mary Gerard, suggests the piece acted as a cathartic expression of the artist's private and perhaps repressed rage. Like I said earlier, there are six variations of this painting known to exist by Artemisia. Rowan, if you scroll down... You can see mm -hmm. her first painting from 1612, and below that, her second painting from somewhere between 1614 and 1620. This is the picture of Judith slaying Holofernes. Well, right away in the first one, we're going to say, good job, Artemisia, for painting yourself in that Virgin Mary blue. Good for you. Use that lapis. Not a cheap color. I love that she did that for herself. And she is dressed in abundant fabric, so she really, she really did that. In the time since she painted the first one, it's so clear that her skill improved. She just manages to get these, what I imagine to be just thin layers of color going down so that the texture of the skin just looks so realistic. You can see the way the metal dimples the skin as it 
bumps his arm. You've get, got this beautiful velvet texture, the, the wrinkles in the fabric. Just every single bit of it is just that much better. You can tell. The, for me, the expressions are so much more detailed. It's more. It looks more peaceful in the first one. In the second one, there's so much nuance in their expressions. All three of them. That really stood out to me. She's also got movement and force more accurately described. In the first picture, and again, guys, we'll have these on the Instagram for you, but she's holding the knife to his neck and cutting through him, but it doesn't really look like the knife is in motion versus in the second one, you can see that she's pushing his head against the force of her knife pulling. Mm-hmm. And and that adds to how visceral it is. And she's got a blood spray going on. Like homegirl graduated from, you know, homemade horror film to like the budget Frickin' Quentin Tarantino has for blood. Just all the blood. Yeah. Oh my god, absolutely. That's that's the most stark thing. That and that the tone is totally different in the second one. It's a lot more yellows to it, which could be the original painting or it could be the effects of the varnish after years. That I'm not sure about, but... I would guess a little bit of A, a little bit of B, yeah. but who's to say? Yeah. So moving to the next one, Judith and the Maidservant, uh, painted in 1613 famously shows Judith with the head of Holofernes, but instead of holding up the head in triumph, as was common to paint at the time, it shows the two women keenly aware of the danger surrounding them. Her father painted a very similar portrait, but with a much softer sense of the brush and a gentler portrayal of the women. So I have those two for you below as well. The first one's Artemisia's, the second one is her father's. Well, You know, we have to say that her father was also an incredibly skilled painter. You can imagine what life must have been like her learning either from him directly or from him indirectly. Mm -hmm. It, it, her father's, it's, the two women are, are looking and hiding the basket. But if they weren't holding a head, if you'd missed the head, it just looks like two women who are like, la-di-da, holding a basket. (laughs) (laughs) I really like that in Artemisia's, at least to my eye in this setting, it seems that she really focused on the condition of the women in this instance. And she describes that through the wrinkling of their clothes and mm-hmm. the stray hairs that are flying around. It Because you can't see quite as much of their faces or as much of their body language, you can see what the act of beheading this man took by how rumpled they are. Yes. Yeah. And it's tiny little things. The There's only a little bit of rosiness on Judith's cheek in Artemisia's, whereas Orazio's Judith is the classically virginal, soft and round with very rosy cheeks and soft looking skin and the maidservant also in Artemisia's has way more wrinkles on her neck, more hair out of place. It's fully covered as it would have been as opposed to Horatio's, which is, again, beautiful, absolutely beautiful, but just softer. And the hair's wrapped but not fully covered. So you can see some of those pretty colors in her hair. And the focus is a lot on the delicate, beautiful folds of the fabric, where Artemisia's, it's more the rumpled, chaotic nature of what they've just done and it's both are beautiful but it just 
feels like, and this is what Artemisia is known for, so I could be a little biased. It feels like Artemisia is a little bit more real of a portrayal of women. Like, look at the placement of the hands. In Artemisia, it's, it's on the far shoulder of the maidservant as if she's grabbing her to run away. And in Orazio's, it's on the nearer shoulder and just a gentle, hey, kind of gently placed on the shoulder. Yeah, you're right. The one shoulder versus the other. In Artemisia's, it looks like a, hey, we got to go. We're conspirators. And the other one, it looks like a comforting thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about anyone else, but if I and Tracy, because it would be you, are murdering someone, (laughs) I'm not comforting you until it's over. No, we got to get through Um, it. I'm so glad you pulled a painting that she and her father both worked on like the idea because it makes me just wish I could be in a room with him talking to her when she was younger. It makes me wonder because I would in seeing these guests and this is again full guess just say maybe he said to her like when you paint these images you can't just focus on the composition you also have to think about the story what's happening before Mm -hmm. and what's happening after because both of these paintings clearly have a version of that and not all baroque paintings do no and like i said many of them portray it with her holding the head in triumph a part of me even wonders and i have no basis of fact to base this on but i wonder if they were using the same models if maybe they even painted these together i don't know the timing of them but Mm, that'd be so cool Mm -hmm. my parents and i do that so Mm -hmm. i want that for them (laughs) yes i want that for them too because it's cool when you and your parents do it so the last picture i have is one of the self-portraits i mentioned the royal collection trust describes this painting thusly artemisia gentileschi was invited to london in 1638 by charles i and probably produced the sophisticated and accomplished self-portrait in england She holds a brush in one hand and a palette in the other, cleverly identifying herself as the female personification of painting, something her male contemporaries could never do. So this is her self-portrait as her is the allegory of painting. Hold up. Can we see where she painted over the original outline of her hair in the background? Maybe? Mid-upper right. It looks like... Her So she has her hair tied back in kind of like a messy low bun. It looks like it might have been in a different position and it got painted over, but not all the way. Ooh, it's quite possible. I'd be curious to see. I don't know. It's not big enough for me to really know. It was just actually the first thing that I noticed, which is interesting. Yeah. She's just – she's so good at fabric. The In this self-portrait, she is – She's got her arm up and she's considering what she's painting. We can't see what she's painting. Mm-mm. It's all about her. And we're not actually getting very much of a peek at her. This is kind of a protected, this is what I'm projecting kind of pose. We see what she's wearing. We see her hair. We see an expression of consideration and not much else, actually. It's a very interesting pose that's twisted. It's twisted so we see her head and her chest and her arms, which I love because she's got these huge sleeves that look impossible to paint in. And her left arm, which is holding the palette, you see all the detail, the fabric and the sleeve. Her right arm, it's just messily shoved up out of the way. But that's really all you see. The way her body's twisted, you don't see much of her skirts or anything. And it cuts off probably mid-thigh. Is she wearing a necklace? That's a skull. 
<laughs> it looks like a skull. It does look like a skull. I wonder if it's supposed to be a locket or a, a cameo or a miniature. Artemisia Gentileschi was goth. You heard it here first, my friends. (laughs) I can't tell if it actually is um, a face or if it's one of those things where the human eye sees faces and things. Right. I mean, listen, in the background, there's also a part of it that I'm like, did she paint an eyeball in the just splattery wall? She doesn't differentiate herself. Right above the middle of her arm. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're talking about. She's not differentiating herself from the background as much as she did in her later work. For example, in the later painting of the beheading, she really gets people separated from that just like solid colored backspace much better than she does in her first one. Interesting, because this is actually one of her later works. I know, and that's why I'm wondering what's going on with the background. Was it finished? I need to know. Because it's just not crisp. We're not getting as much depth of field as she painted in a lot of I her later works. I wonder Listen, this is big talk for someone that is not a painter by trade. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just blown away by the colors. In, in her green sleeves, I see green, kind of a white color, a pale pink, a bit of blue, a bit of a darker pink. All in the green sleeve. It's just beautiful. Ooh, what if the lack of depth of field is the way it should be and she's painting herself, the personification of painting, into being two-dimensional? And she's, like, painting herself into being a painting. Yeah, I'm sold. I believe it. She's too good to – I'm <laughs> – yes, yes. Cool. I like that explanation. I could never go to art school. I just believe whatever anyone tells me and be like, yes, that is definitely the intention. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That is all I have on the life and work and impact of Artemisia Gentileschi, the most famous Baroque painter you've never heard of, who the world needs to know, whose work I dream of now seeing in a museum up close. I'm sure that can be done. There's a pretty big collection of Baroque artwork at the Getty out here, maybe. I, I'm, I'll find this. I love a museum. All right. I'll add it to the tour. Sounds good. All right, Tracy, mm-hmm. tell me if you can possibly imagine something. Tell me something good. All right. My something good this week is very simple. It is this green juice smoothie, I don't know, that I've been making that just makes me so happy because it's very healthy and it does not have that health food taste to it. Can I have one, please? Yes, absolutely. It's so simple. Um, I got it from a YouTuber, Rach Loves, but I don't use her exact recipe. Um, the way I do it is it's two, two green apples, some celery, some spinach, a lemon, an orange, a cucumber, and orange juice and ice. And you blend it in a blender. Wow, that entire recipe, I was like, yes, no, yes, no. (laughs) That's the trick. Because it comes out and it just tastes like citrusy and delightful. Oh, and pineapple. You have to add pineapple because that makes it really sweet. Um, It's so good. I know Rowan's making a face. I had two cups of it today. It just makes me happy. I feel like I can indulge in it because it's just... The worst thing in it is some orange juice. The rest of it is all fruits and vegetables. It makes me happy. I feel... We're not labeling orange juice as a bad thing, for the record. That's not what no, we're no, doing No, no, no. I today. just mean the thing that is the least healthy in it, which proves how healthy it is. 
It makes me very yes, happy. Good. I blend it up, put a little ice in a cup, put it in because it's this weird consistency between a smoothie and a juice. Um, I'm just – it makes me happy. I love citrus. So it's just like bright and citrusy and makes me very happy. You should add some ginger to it. The original recipe has ginger in it, and I don't like ginger. Do it. Ah, I, uh, I always forget that. I want you to like ginger so much. I know. Which makes no sense because you and I have been in many a situation where I eat your portion of ginger. Yeah, it's so funny that you call that out because the original recipe, the only thing I didn't include was a little bit of ginger, and that's what they put in there, and I, mm-mm. There, it's like those noodles you and I like at that vegetarian place where you eat around the ginger and I'm like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think when I went to China years ago, I ate into raw ginger like six too many times and now I just can't do it. Yeah. Okay. I hear you. It's just not, not for me. At least you have a yummy green drink. It makes me so happy. I will make it for you sometime when we hang out and I'll even put ginger in it for you. Thank you. <laughs> so Rowan, it's your turn. Tell me something good. I have a very something good. Okay. The story goes thusly. Mm-hmm. Kaylee and I are driving back to her house from having run errands. We're we're going by her house because we're going to go to that members-only, vaccinated-only bar that we mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. And Kaylee, when I'm parking in her neighborhood, goes, is that a German Shepherd? And sees this dog wandering around the neighborhood. And we think, oh, it's this older German shepherd that lives across the street from her that got out. Mm -hmm. And we're going to go get the German shepherd. Turns out this is definitely not that (gasps) one because that one was old and lived a long, beautiful life but was no longer walking this earth. And also a girl. Mm -hmm. And this German shepherd is a boy. (laughs) Oh, my God. But he was the best boy there were fireworks going and when we went up to go check on him you know he's a strange big Mm -hmm. dog you don't just go up to them he ran up to the two of us so fast and pressed his body up against us because he was afraid of the fireworks baby boy i know and we walked around the neighborhood for a long time trying to you know see if he would you know see his house and go there Mm because Dogs do that. I don't know. My horse does that. When she sees where she lives, she's like, bye. I'm going to go relax now. <laughs> um, No luck. No dice. We asked a couple of the neighbors that were out. No one knew whose dog it was. So we bring him back to her house. He's so sweet. We order in some dog food. We take care of him. He finally relaxes. He won't let anyone in the house not be within sight of him or he'll go run around like checking on everyone and Mm -hmm. make sure they're okay he sits he heals he just needs cuddles he wants to be a sandwich between two people at all times god that's so cute i love this dog okay so he has to come back with me that night Mm -hmm. and he all night would he would relax and then he'd get up and check to make sure that no one left him mm-hmm. and then he'd relax and he he didn't jump up on the bed uh, when i tell you this dog was the goodest boy <laughs> oh baby he so we didn't know what to call him because the next day we took him to see if he had a microchip mm-hmm. no microchip oh my god that's so stressful this This dog is a young German Shepherd. He's worth a lot of money. How can he not be microchipped? But we start calling him Himbo. (laughs) 
because he he loves women. He's a little wary around men, mm-hmm. and he always listens, and he's the goodest boy. Aww. And Kaylee, bless her ability to internet, finds the owners having posted a missing thing on Facebook. And they came, his people came, and two little kids came, and they were all so Aww. excited to see him. His name was James. Oh, James. I know. <laughs> He was so happy to see his people. He seems like he was so well-trained and well-loved that he wasn't afraid of people. Oh, sweet boy. He he was amazing. And he they said he probably got out because the fireworks scared him because yeah. he's very afraid of fireworks. Mm-hmm. And while we were talking to them, because they're lovely, they're neighbors, he was just bouncing between the two groups of people because we were spread out because it's still COVID, you know. Right. He was just bouncing between the two groups of people, making sure everyone was okay, giving everyone love and attention so that I guess we all knew. (laughs) He was so good. And I think they immediately took him to get microchipped, which makes me so happy. So everyone, microchip your gosh darn dog. Um, Because, Mm -hmm. you know, they love you as much as you love them. Yes. And. They miss you when you're away. I'm so happy you t- you found him. You took care of him. You made sure he was safe and fed and loved. You, I, just as a pet owner, like you have no idea how much that meant to that family. Like you, that is everything. You know, if your animal's missing, you're so worried and you're thinking the worst is happening. And to know that he wasn't scared the whole time and hurting and lonely, he was being well taken care of and loved. And someone was actively finding finding his forever home back for him. Like, oh. It was just belly scratches from start to finish. He, <laughs> I was so worried because, you know, German Shepherds are very valuable dogs. They're, I'd be more concerned they can be very protective. They can be, like, protective of their people. And I was – if they're not trained well, oh, yeah. like clearly this dog was, if they're not trained well, they can be – they can have aggression issues when it comes to protecting their place and their people. Oh, yeah. We took him on a walk and – he didn't care about other dogs. He didn't care about other people except the one time a dog in someone's yard started barking to protect their house. Mm-hmm. This dog got between me and the barking dog so fast. Mm-hmm. He, I, I appreciated that I was in his circle of worry. Yes. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I, we were worried because we didn't want someone to just say, oh, yeah, that's our German Shepherd. And, right, you know, just take him and and of course the only shelter that we could get a hold of is a kill shelter and we're not going to drop him off somewhere like that uh no i would have flown across the country to get this dog if that was what it needed (laughs) oh i know kaylee and i are like i guess we're family now i guess if (laughs) his people don't come i guess we're just adopting this dog Mm -hmm. because he's the goodest boy Mm mm-hmm so anyway, Himbo. I know his name is James, but in my heart, he will always be our Himbo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that is abs- you and Kaylee are the best. You saved a puppy, brought him back to his home with kids who love him and parents who love him. Sweet Himbo, your journey is over. You can relax. I'm. I keep thinking though, like we really do, or well, Kaylee really does live so close to these people, and this dog now knows a way to get out. Clearly. Mm-hmm. He knows how to get to the house. I'm just waiting for this dog to be like, hey, guys, what's up? I'm back at my other house just for a visit. It might happen. Like, just just here to check on you. I'll go back to the kids at dinner time, but I'm just 
stopping by. <laughs> I love that for him. <laughs> so, right. yeah, in conclusion, make sure your dogs can be easily found because they miss you. They cry mm-hmm. for you. They love you. And uh, Tracy's the pet owner who can tell you. They oh, yeah. look at you like you put the gosh darn sun in the sky. It's very sweet. It's It means everything. So microchip them, spay and neuter them. Um, and if you have a cat, you can get kitty convict collars, which are bright orange, and you can embroider their name and your phone number onto it in case they get out. Um, really, mm-hmm. really important to make sure that your pet has a way to get back to you. So with all of that said, thank you so much for listening. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe, and we'll see you soon, okay? If you get lost from us, we'll find you again. Don't worry. You can come back to Willing and Fable. We can always come back. We care about you. We're looking for you. We have treats. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Fascinating.